Welcome to the Chameleons Podcast. I'm incredibly honored and excited to introduce today's guest, Bobby Chang, entrepreneur, philanthropist, industrial designer, and co-founder of Incase. Bobby is also a Bay Area native who's had a frontal seat to the meteoric rise in the transformation of technology. Today, we will talk about his journey and some experiences that have been central to his work and that have also shaped his life. We are understanding how human behavior forms the core of everything he creates. In his own words, they don't just design objects, they design experiences. I'm humbled by Bobby's generosity and his willingness to share some personal moments of change that can inspire others on their paths. This is essentially a story about a personal quest for creating the best opportunities for learning, innovation, and growth for oneself and our loved ones. I hope you will enjoy this conversation with a very special entrepreneurial mind and human being as much as I did. I'm Imak Samirana, and this is The Chameleon's Podcast. I'm so grateful to be here in Miami and to get this opportunity to sit down and talk to you and learn more about your journey. So welcome, Bobby. Thank you, Yamek. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so we talked about making a different type of interview and we talked about going down more like a chronological journey and elaborating on some pivotal moments and experiences that you had in your life and see if we can identify some patterns and connecting it all. Yes, it's it's been an interesting few days because when we started talking, I started to put down all the aha moments in my life and see if there was any connections or if there is a thread or an arc that shows behavior changes maybe even some patterns of knowledge, access to knowledge, or how to decide on different things, right? So that has been an insightful experience for me because I've never done that where I actually, in hindsight, look at all the things that have happened in my life and see if there's actually things that connect each other. And in this process, I've discovered this amazing thread, which when you start to look at all the aha moments, Mm. you start to understand that prior to something happening, for example, if you look at a resume, mm-hmm. there is a chronological order of you know, things that you've done. Mm. But when you start looking at some of the aha moments, that is actually even more interesting because those aha moments led to explosion of things, like mm. creative things that mm. have happened. Yeah. So this is really a journey of that, which I'm super interested in sharing. Um, I'm so glad you are. And uh, what you said right there, the resume only lists certain criteria or credentials mm-hmm. but it never tells the story of what really happened around all of those points and how they're connected or even led to each other mm-hmm. and all the other details that are not included in the resume so That's right. so That's maybe right. we will get some of that for, with regards to you today or your yeah. background so should we just start at the beginning? Like you were born in 1970. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, yes. You know, if you listen to the, the beginnings, the origin story, it is an immigration story. We're immigrants. My dad and my mom, they were born from Taiwan and I was actually born there as well. And my brother as well. So, so we, our whole family was born there. And 
my dad was a culinary director at the Japanese embassy in Taiwan. So he was fortunate enough to meet some people that invited him to come to the U.S. And so in 1975, he came here and was invited to actually run a few restaurants. And oh. at the time, it was actually in Ohio, Akron, Ohio. <laughs> so That's quite different from Taiwan. Yeah, so you yeah. can imagine. I, I was six. I remember this very vividly. I was six at the time. And he came a year before us so you can maybe learn a little bit of English because when we all came, we, we didn't speak <laughs> English at all. So imagine landing in Ohio from a small island where you have tropical weather. And we landed two days before Christmas. So <laughs> it was snow everywhere you know and not just a little bit of snow it was <laughs> snow where you had to dig yourself out of the front door you had to wow. jump out of the second story wow. dig yourself out of the front door so you can get out and go somewhere wow for us it was a shock but also two days before christmas so there was presents you know it was yeah. christmas tree and presents so we were like what is this place this is so odd yeah then wow. going to school, that was, that was then the beginnings of the journey because we didn't speak English. And thinking back at it now, we were bullied. You know, the kids, they, they, they were like these Chinese kids, like, who, who are they and what are they doing? And mm. they start asking us questions and we start learning the yes and no, yeah, the simple words. And they would all start laughing and we didn't know why they were laughing. Wow. So this beginning, this journey of like, okay, we need to learn English quick. Yes. Or we need to figure out something else wow. to be able to get into this rhythm of being in a totally different country. So it was a bit of a struggle in the beginning mm. because, it, you know, like everything else, you have to learn. And it took us a while to learn the basics of the language. But once we got going, we started integrating. And mm. there was other moments of being bullied as well. And I remember some of those... Because of being different in, yeah, in regards to ethnicity and language? That's or? right. There was only one other Chinese family, and of course we knew them, and we were friends with them, and they helped us integrate a little bit better. But we learned English quick. The other thing that I remember vividly was like, at that time, Bruce Lee was super famous, yeah. right? And so the kids all thought that Chinese kids knew martial arts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you know what? I need to take that yeah. and t use that as my <laughs> advantage. <laughs> yes. Right? So anytime someone wanted to pick on us, I just whipped out the Bruce Lee. What? <laughs> and it got into the pose. And they started running because they're like, oh, shoot. They're all born with martial arts. And so it, it, was, a, it was a funny, you know, it was a funny adaptation to our environment, you know. And, <laughs> You found a way to kind of intimidate them before it even escalated or came to the point where you had to use it. So you didn't have to know it. It was just a facade. Exactly. It was a way to neutralize the situation. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But you were then six when you came to the U.S. So do you remember anything from the early years in Taiwan? You know, a few moments. It's one of the, one of the most traumatic moments is when my dad left before us. He left a year before. Mm. And I remember that vividly because, you know, flying on airplanes was such a mystery mm. for, I think, for a lot of people and for, for us as kids. Yeah, even everywhere in the world, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, yeah. and there was no direct flights to Ohio, so you had to stop. And I remember when we were getting ready to leave, we stopped in Hawaii, which I was like, oh, this is kind of nice. You mm. know, it looks like home because mm. of the island, right? Yes. But when he left, it was very traumatic for us. Mm. You know, it was like, oh, where is he going? How? And to be able to call f by phone mm. 
I mean, that was a that was in long distance. You know, back then it was a foreign thing. So we never we didn't know where he went, and we didn't know if he was coming back. We didn't know. It was a mystery for us until we arrived a year later,、mm. and then we saw him. You know, so the trauma became neutralized because of then seeing my dad. You know,、yeah. and it was tough yeah, in the beginning. But for most immigrants, I'm sure it's you know a typical、yeah. story of like how you came to the U.S. looking for a better life or a different life. You know, looking for opportunities. Opportunity, and my dad told us he's like, I wanted to bring you guys to the U.S. because I wanted you guys to have a better education or a different education. You know, Taiwan the education is very regimented, so if you're learning the language, you would sit there with your book and write each word a thousand times, right? So yeah, not very fun, but. You learned it, and so he he sought out a different education for us, a more open-minded education,、mm-hmm. and it proved out to be great because I went to design school, and design school in Taiwan is probably very different. I have a lot of cousins and、yeah. a lot of family members who are also creatives. Oh, you do? Yeah, I have on both sides of the family. My uncle is super creative. He was a landscape architect, and he did multiple things along his career path,、wow. and so. You know, I look at the education and sort of the way we think about things,、mm. and I think we were very fortunate that we got that education here in the U.S. because、mm. I think there was a more open-mindedness、mm. to it,、mm. being around other so, people that are creatives. Your family members in Taiwan, the ones who were creative, obviously got their education in Taiwan and and allowed them to do creative stuff with that. But coming to the U.S., I mean, you got something different probably that might have opened other doors and directions. Yes, and I believe that's、mm. the influence of your peers. So, in going through school anywhere, right, your peers really define. It's not the A students, it's the B students, it is, and it's also where they're coming from, right?、Mm. So, if you're in Taiwan, they、mm. all come from very similar backgrounds、yeah. and situations. But here, you may have students coming from, you know, from Europe or from other parts of Asia. So, I, going through school here, I had friends from. All over the world. Yes, and yes. so that I think gives you a perspective that allows you to be a little bit more open-minded、mm-hmm. and to be able to look at it from other perspectives. And I think that's where the difference was. My cousins and relatives are super creative as、mm-hmm. well, no doubt. But when we start having conversations about different things, you know, and I would go back every couple years,、mm-hmm. ever since we landed in '76. First time we were back was seventy、mm. nine, and then subsequent years we just go back for family gatherings、mm. or weddings or different things. And when you have those conversations with them, you can really tell that, wow, we were fortunate that、yeah. my dad selected to bring us here for that education. So that's super memorable for me because he didn't do it for himself. He was set in Taiwan.、Mm. He was actually beginning a, a, another restaurant, and so for him it was kind of a struggle to like. Do I do this、mm. because it's going to be tough? He didn't speak English,、mm. and you know when you're older, languages come a little bit harder. Mm. Mm. But we were super young, and we adapted, and、mm. we integrated in a very short period of time. That to me was interesting. You know, now being a parent, you're like, okay, what can I give my kids、mm. so they have an advantage? Yeah, the willingness to to do something that might be uncomfortable for you, but it will may change the whole trajectory of your family. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. Now we look back, and and I was like, wow, he really sacrificed.、Mm. He didn't have to leave Taiwan. He could have had a good life there. He had a wonderful life there. We probably would have gone to like an American school or something、mm. like that. But it's not the same as being here in the U.S. And at the time here in the U.S., I think the education system was probably a bit better. You know, if you look back at it, there was probably more attention to different arts and all、mm. that kind of stuff. But 
now you question if mm. education now is an advantage.、Mm. You know,、mm. especially if you're coming from a different country. Like Taiwan has a lot of foreign influence, a lot of people that go there and study、mm. and do different practices there. So, is that an advantage now? Yeah. And I think about that all the time. It's like, well, for my first daughter,、mm. she's 22 now, like, what advantage could I give to her? Right. And、mm. then now my son's six. What advantage can I give to him?、Mm. Under these circumstances、right. and based on who they are. That's right. That's right. Right. Interesting. I find that fascinating just thinking about how the little Bobby, like <laughs> in Taiwan, the young child moving to the US, you came to this world with some genetic dispositions from the very beginning, and then all these circumstances that you experienced, the nurturing, all of that, the nature and nurture. Factors. It's a sweet, unique mix every single time. Yes. And we're talking about, you know, how do you see it and how you are you able to define the difference,、mm. you know? And we're talking about our, our siblings, right? I have、mm. a brother, he's a year younger, and we couldn't be more different. Just、mm-hmm. from approach to life to problem solving to、mm-hmm. risk tolerance to how we want to contribute to the world, you know, we're very different people. So even though you're a year apart, The nurturing was the same, you know, the disciplining,、mm. that's all the same, yeah. right? Yeah. If yeah. you both get in trouble, <laughs> you both are disciplined. That's all the same, right? So then, w- what is it about the natural, inherent composition that we have、mm. that makes us so different, right? Or、hey. that, that makes it challenging, or that、mm. allows us to do things that the other one,、mm. one wouldn't,、mm. or vice versa,、mm. right? So, that to me is fascinating. It's so fascinating to me, too. Are we becoming more ourselves over time because we're being open to find out who we really are, what we really like, what we're passionate about, what we are able to do, not able to do,、mm-hmm. or maybe just not able to do because we don't have an interest for it or because it's a bit outside of that field that you're interested in? Or it could be many reasons, but basically, are we becoming more ourselves over time? Because we're peeling off all the layers、mm-hmm. that have been cluttering the site of who you are. I don't know. It's fascinating to think about when people say, I, I found myself, or I, I finally know like, who I am. Right. And I, I think that's a real thing that people actually experience something like finding out who they are. But has that been there all along? And to what extent are you really just kind of becoming more you? Right. Right. Well, Being so close in age, we were putting into everything together.、Mm-hmm. So, from music class to、mm-hmm. sports to you know, karate, martial arts, all these things, you're putting into everything together.、Mm-hmm. So, then you can start to see how each person actually looks at that and approaches that. Yeah. And I was always mischievous when I was a kid. <laughs> I always got into trouble. I always like pulling pranks, you know,、mm-hmm. doing things I shouldn't probably be doing. <laughs> But that was my curious nature. And I think that thread has really been that arc that has followed me or has been in me for、mm. my whole life. And maybe that's why I went into design because I was curious about how things、uh, are created,、mm. you know?、Mm. And if we look at the first aha moment,、mm. yes,、um, yes. it was age seven, eight. My babysitter at the time gave me a skateboard. It was the plastic skateboard, the little one. Yeah. You know, it, it is f- colorful and. I looked at that in amazement because I was like, wow, this is, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and like, someone created it.、Wow. You know? And、yeah. my brother, I don't think he had the same reaction, right? But he probably, you know, he, he didn't show it. But for me, it was like this aha moment of, 
wow, people will create stuff like this? Yeah. And if I look back at all the different moments, that was one of the first that really inspired me to think that, oh, this is fun. We can actually influence what we do in this world and yeah. we can actually create things that yeah. give people that type of emotion. Yeah. Right? Yeah, like, it's a, like trigger. a trigger. Yeah. And there was many moments that were similar to that mm. around that mm. same age. Mm. And the more I understand about child development, you know, I understand that, you know, I read a book, Joseph Magical Child mm. and Joseph mm. Chilton Pierce, mm. and he talks about the different matrices. When I look at that, it's like, oh, around age seven and eight is mm. when you want to start mm. to learn how things work in the world. Mm. The first matrix is really about dreaming blue sky mm. you don't you don't care about anything mm. they don't care about how anything works mm. right so if you're trying to make your kids learn things and how things work before age seven yeah mm. he, he, it's not so important mm. to them mm. you know and mm. i see that and i have seen that with mm. my kids mm. you know and so i can see why that was such an aha mm. moment for me right because i was ready to accept the information and to bring in that information yeah. that kind of transition from trying to understand the world to actually trying to create a world yes Yes. So to be a kind of an active participant in the creation of experiences for others. Right, right. So, yeah, if you can first understand that that yeah. can happen, and then you can understand that you can affect that to yeah. happen. So I, I think these aha moments are super interesting to dive into because there's been several key ones along the way and yeah. now that i look at it i'm fascinated by the fact that curiosity is a common thread that makes me move about this world in a very not regimented way but in a way that allows me to see that yes one thing did lead to another and it, you know eventually going into the design world and wanting to create more things that inspire other people to be happy or to see things in a different way i can imagine you seeing that skateboard and it's so beautiful and you're responding to it and reacting to seeing it in a different way than maybe other children and you understand that this is special to you thinking about it as a trigger like you had many moments where you found something beautiful mm -hmm. aesthetically or like the creation of it yeah. And I was wondering, do you think these kind of triggers were important for your interest to blossom? Or do you think that they're just touching upon something that was always there? Like, say you have a perfect pitch when you sing, you can hear music perfectly. And you don't know that until you hear music or you try to sing. Mm -hmm. So if you have a perfect eye for design maybe that was always there and if it wasn't triggered by that thing it might have been triggered by something else. it would be other things that would have made it show itself yeah well there's something there where I, it's it's a bit of a building block mm. right so this moment was the start of it because i don't remember anything prior to that that mm. was so emotional it triggered an emotion that i never had before huh. right but after that when I started playing baseball, I started to see things that would help. So I'll give you an example. Mm. I played catcher when I was playing baseball because mm. I wanted to be involved in every play. <laughs> like I didn't want to be standing there waiting for something to happen. And if you're a pitcher, you're not always pitching because mm. some days you aren't pitching. But as a catcher, you're involved with every play, every game, and somewhat in control. So that's the position I wanted. Yeah. I wanted to be that. <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> right? Yes. So the second, one of the second moments I had was like, you know, everybody had a regular catcher's mitt. And then I saw a guy who had a catcher's mitt that had an orange fluorescent paint around the edge of the catcher's mitt. So when you put the catcher's mitt out, the pitcher had something to aim to. Oh. 
right? And I was fascinated by that. It was like, wow, that improves the visibility for the picture, right? Now you have something that you can focus your attention into. And that, to me, was interesting because someone came up with the、yeah. idea to improve something that wasn't there before. And do you think that was intended? Yes. Or do you think it was a design choice? Well, at the time, it was definitely somebody who thought about it and put that there, right? You know, you don't see that these days because、mm. there's other things, like maybe the, the mask, maybe the, the chest pad,、mm. maybe the whole sort of catcher. You know, maybe the pictures, you know, maybe that's not so important for the pictures. But at that time, things were evolving. And as things evolve, ideas are tested. And if it works, it continues. If it doesn't, it gets. Phased out, or maybe it evolves into something else. So, those kind of things are sort of the building blocks of design. You're always testing to see what works and、yeah. what doesn't work, right? Early, it was baseball, and then you start to play tennis. And you told me earlier, before this interview, that you start to understand the power of feedback when you were around 12. Could you elaborate on that? So,、mm-hmm. yeah, you're correct. Baseball was my、mm-hmm. first love,、mm-hmm. and I. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think being in the Midwest, baseball was a, is a sport. You know,、mm-hmm. people played it. And this is an American pastime. So I grew up playing baseball and then also watching football on TV. Like American, American football? American football.、Yeah. And then w- when I was right around 12, my mom she decided she wanted to take tennis lessons. And my brother and I found it fascinating. We were、mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a cool sport. Maybe you can teach us. So That was the introduction to tennis. And as I started progressing in tennis, it was a time where VHS was the thing, right? <laughs> <And> this, <yes> . <laughs> VHS was like, you know, big, massive piece of tape. And, and, and I started thinking to myself, I was like, oh, wow, if I can get a, a recorder, a VHS recorder, which is like the size of a bus, so massive, right?、Mm-hmm. And it wasn't cheap. So, I had to save my money. I was working at my dad's restaurant, so I was, I was saving all my tips, and I finally saved enough to buy it. And what I wanted to do was record myself so I could see what I was doing and if there w a s things I could improve. How long had you been playing tennis then? Probably about a year. And, and you already started to save money for equipment to be able to watch yourself playing this game in、uh, order to understand how to improve your game? Right. And if you think about that, there was no YouTube or there was nothing.、Mm-hmm. It may have been an inspiration from a coach talking about it. But, you know, like for me, to videotape yourself to see what you're because perception and reality is very different. You may think that you're hitting the ball a certain way, but in reality, it's not like that. I know. Right? So when、yeah. you start to see yourself in the video, you start to align that perception with reality. So that feedback loop became this, I guess, another building block, right? Because、yeah. in everything that we do, if you have feedback, you actually can improve faster. Whether it's feedback from videotaping yourself or from a coach seeing something and telling you. And telling you, correcting、right? you.、Or、correcting you.、Mm-hmm. But the feedback from the, from the video was even better because you can actually do that. At any time, where you may only get a lesson once a week or、mm. twice a week or whatever it was. You could do this all, the, all, the all day long. Yeah, like, you can videotape and you can yourself. watch yourself, and you're like, oh, wow, that's. And when we were playing tennis, the fun thing to do was actually to 
pretend like you were somebody else,、mm. right? So you could so pretend like, like you're McEnroe you? or you know, Boris <laughs> Becker,、yep. or my favorite was Ivan Lendl. I modeled my backhand after Lendl. He was a, he was very mechanical. Where was he from? Czech Republic, I、oh, believe.、Okay. You know, I modeled and I even bought his rackets so I can fully emulate him. And I would watch the videos and then、mm. compare it. So that to me, the feedback was a fascinating concept, and I think. That was another aha moment that、mm. really evolved into everything that I do now, right? Because if you don't have feedback, you have nothing. You know, it's very important to align perception and reality. That's what that feedback loop became. It's fascinating that you actually looked for it and you made sure that you got it、mm-hmm. early on. So you must have understood that this kind of information and this kind of knowledge would help me. And I don't have this knowledge, so how do I get that knowledge? I have to find a way to kind of gather it. Yes. And then you use whatever information you have, and you actually find a solution to that problem or the lack of knowledge. Yeah, and, and how to improve from it. Yeah, and how to improve from it, and actually use it and apply it. And also how to accelerate the progress. Yeah. Right. How do you speed up your learning process? It's super active. You're only 12 years old,、right. and you're very actively concerned about getting the best training and feedback for a game you played just for a little while. Yeah, it's not even. Do you know that you're good yet? <laughs> do you know like it doesn't matter? If you look at typical tennis players, they usually start w- much earlier in terms of training and gearing for the.、Uh, Tournaments and and eventually all the things that lead up to be becoming professional,、yeah. right? And we didn't know at the time、yeah. we started too late. Nobody、yeah. tells you, and、yes. that's okay. It doesn't、yeah. even matter. No, we were just having fun. Yeah, right. And but、uh, I think a lot of it was like, okay, well, how can I how can I get better faster? Like, what do I need to do to get better faster? So the feedback loop was one of the mechanisms, and getting better faster started to show itself in terms of one of the things that. Really influences my life, right?、It's、how do we how do we get there faster? How do we get better faster? Earlier, when we talked before this interview, you mentioned that you also spent time on learning the violin <laughs> for for seven years, but you didn't use any video recordings to get a feedback loop there. So why? What's the difference? <laughs> when we were in Ohio, my mom saw this guy. Playing the fiddle with his dog outside his shop, his, his music shop, and she's like, "Oh, I, it'd be cool if my kids played the violin, right?" She didn't know a fiddle from a violin from, <laughs> you know, anything else. She's just like, "Oh, I want my kids to play some music." And at the time, playing the fiddle was actually kind of fun because the music is really like uplifting and、mm-hmm. it's really moving, and you know, you're playing two strings at a time, so it's like you have to coordinate to make sure the two sounds are good, or else it just doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> And we were two, you know, Chinese kids playing the fiddle in Ohio, you know, so we we fit right in, you know. But then she put us on the track of playing in the orchestra,、mm-hmm. and for me, the, I didn't enjoy the music. It didn't do anything for me. So the next seven years of playing the violin was torture, you know. And I tell her now, I was like, Mom, you you really wasted seven years of my life, just in joke, of course. I mean, I you know,、yeah. just like. But going through that, I know I wouldn't push that onto my kids、mm-hmm. because. Kids know what they want to do. They never do anything that they don't want to do. If they're doing something they don't want to do, it's because the parents are forcing them.、Mm. And violin for us was that. And unfortunately, you know, we faked 
practicing, right? You, you have a log of how many hours you're supposed to practice every week. And we were like, okay, play for two minutes and write down 15 minutes and, or 30 minutes, you know? And mom would be in the kitchen making food and she wouldn't know the better. You know, we just faked it all along the way. But, but that was like, for us, you know, we could have been doing something that was more fun and, and something that mm. we could progress at. Yeah. So, you know, feedback on that was not important They're to not me because <laughs> I didn't want to get better in that. <laughs> there was no interest, right? You, yeah. you know, as a kid, you know, you know exactly what you want to do. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. And I think as parents, <laughs> you can see when your kids are having fun and when they're not having fun. Yeah. because it just pours out of them like when they're having fun and the emotions everything just pours out of them mm. you know i wish my my mom was a little bit more sensitive to that but <laughs> it is what it is you know it's a different era and we learn from it and now we can apply that to our kids and i would never want to do that to any of my kids or right. you know i i don't think i did yeah. you know force them to do anything no. that they don't want to do no. in fact we were super supportive in everything that they wanted to do and yeah. i think that's i think there's a I think parents have evolved and that, and that could be a generational thing mm. you know they were born just after the war in taiwan and mm. you know after the second war you know it's a different culture different era yeah. and their parents you know what did they go through that yeah. forced them to be a certain way Right? So different. we get to look at that and say, okay, well, are we going to change? Mm. Are we mm. going to be different with our kids? And mm. I think most people have. And, mm. you know, yeah. people have become more sensitive and they understand that, you know, that your kids are going to tell you and just mm. yeah. let them show the interest and you support and supplement that. You know? Kids have, have a stronger voice today than 200 years ago. Like, yes. <laughs> or or <Cool>. 100. <laughs> yes. It's it, fascinating what you're saying there because there are experiences in your childhood that you would repeat for your children because they're great experiences right <laughs> so you might make your favorite meal for your children your mama's meal that you really loved and you might repeat that tradition over time or go to the same picnic area or go to the same beach or travel to the same place so that they get the childhood experiences that you got and then there are other things that they did that you would never repeat like make them learn an instrument for seven years that they didn't like or there might be things that they didn't do but you missed right and you wish that you had but then you also know that if you had it life might have become very different mm -hmm. so maybe you don't want it because you don't want to like rock the boat <laughs> maybe it would have gone worse but sometimes when you miss that sometimes you want to give it to your children anyways because you understand that that could have changed something and it doesn't matter if you changed it beforehand well i'm 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 smiling on the inside because yeah with renzo he's six now right <laughs> yes and we're like no maybe you want to play the keyboard you know and test it out and i can see in every ounce of him he was not having fun so i was like oh you know what maybe maybe we do something different he's like okay I think as a kid, they just want to try different things mm. and you can tell if that's mm. happening or not, mm. right? So mm. that was a clear sign. Yeah. And luckily, it was only a couple of weeks of yeah. trying that out yeah. and seeing if he liked it or not. And there was no interest there. Maybe it comes later. Who knows? At this particular time, there was none. So we didn't push it. And the other thing is <laughs> I bought him the same skateboard that I got you when did. I was a kid, right? <laughs> and I was like, you want to learn how to skateboard? And... You know, there was a spark there. He, he was like, oh, this looks like fun, right? So, so we're, as we're going along and, mm. and I'm teaching how to ride a skateboard, mm. he had actually more interest to learn how to rollerblade. 
<gasps> so it was like, okay, cool. Let's put this aside because a lot of those things is about mm. learning balance. Mm-hmm. So whether you learn it on a skateboard, or you mm. learn it balancing on a rollerblade. Mm. You know, it's all mm. about movement and mm. freedom of movement for mm. them as well. So mm. it, I didn't have any hangups. I didn't force him to continue mm. to skateboard because you know, I'm like, why force that? Yes. If he's gonna want to do it, he was gonna do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and rollerblade was more interesting for him. So he's like, I want to do that. I'm like, okay, let's get the rollerblades and you know, teach you how to do that. Right. Lessons learned, right? Yeah. Because when we were little, we didn't enjoy it. And right. now as parents, you look at that and you're like, okay, well, let me make it so they are having fun. Because when they're having fun, the learning is easy. Yeah. yeah. When they're not having fun, it's not. It's not. Or it's you have to make it fun for them, right? Mm. So, you know, if I give you an example of how I got them into it, mm. well, rollerblading is a bit scary at first because mm. once you get on, it's very slippery when mm. you're on a concrete surface. Mm. So we started off on the grass and on the grass, it's much easier to run around. Yeah, and you can fall. And you can fall, and you know. And the thing that really clicked was he wanted to play soccer, you know. <laughs> and when he's playing soccer on a rollerblade, he's not even thinking about the process of learning how to rollerblade. He's mm. just like, I'm going after the ball. Mm. So that was the beginning of learning balance mm. for him, and that was fun for him. Mm. So I was like, okay, cool. You want to play soccer? Let's play soccer. Yeah, you know, if it's on rollerblade, it's on rollerblade. Yeah. You know? so we have to be flexible and we have to be paying attention to the cues that they're throwing off because mm. the, the kids are giving you mm. all kinds of clues. Mm. You know, and you can have your way of thinking about mm. teaching them, but maybe if you add in the factor of fun, maybe this way could be actually more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. And then you still get to the end product, balance. Right, less uh, frustration, less frustration. Less frustration. Yeah. It's almost like you're, you're building skill sets with different methods, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but it doesn't matter if it's in the conventional way mm-hmm. or if it's in a completely different way, if the end product is a mastery of something. That's right. That you can use for something else. Yes. And to loop it back to feedback, right? Our, we have phones, it's so easy to video something now. Mm. You don't have mm. to have this massive recorder and tapes and <laughs> all this stuff. You just whip out your phone and take a shot. And if you're able to give your your kid a feedback loop, mm. right? Mm. He sees it. He's like, oh, cool. That's you know, and he wants to now do something fun or or creative, <laughs> you know, to be on the video. So yeah. it's you know yeah. that that feedback loop for him becomes a learning lesson. We we did a lot of that, mm. you know. We we did a lot yeah. of that feedback loop because yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, maybe you, you want to see yourself on camera. And then he wants to make a little like short video of yeah. me doing something, or he's doing like this or that, <laughs> or he's like, oh, take a take a video of me shooting this goal and he shoots it and falls down and you're and everybody laughs and you know mm. you watch the video and you laugh and yeah <laughs> so it, it becomes like a feedback loop that's also can be entertaining which then becomes less like we have to do this mm. we have to do this mm. it's regimented mm. it's more of a yeah. another tool to make it fun that's the thing that, that i'm learning that has to happen right if you don't have that fun factor then don't bother forget about it yeah <laughs> don't be pushing it <laughs> like that we are going into the educational path that you're talking about here, both for your son, but also for yourself. Like, 85, 1985, you're 15. Then you started pursuing your interest in cars and sports. Uh-huh. And you kind of made choices in your own educational path. So could you talk a little about that? Yes. Because this is a bit connected to, to, yeah, to so the, the same topic. Uh, the aha moment for me there really came from, like, how do I pursue the things that I'm interested in? And... At the time, school was, I wouldn't say challenging, but it was not very interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Because the regular curriculum, I, I was able to learn a few things, but 
What interests me was still tennis. By then I was more serious and I had a coach. And then the other thing that has always been there was I've always drawn cars since I was little. And when I was 15, my mom's friend, you know, because I, I was showing interest of like mechanics and how things work. And he's like, oh, I have this car. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. Right. And it, was a, it, it was a 240Z, a Datsun 240Z. He sold it to me for a dollar because it didn't run. There was rust all over. And he's like, hey, I just sell it to you for a dollar. Right. And, and so, you know, I got this car and I was like, this is a sports car. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to fix this thing up. And so my interest was all around this car and then in tennis and nothing else mattered, like chemistry or geometry, all that stuff. I wasn't interested. So I started looking at my curriculum in high school and I started to switch out classes that I could and I would be able to like PE class or you know like any other class that, that I could switch out I would mm. switch out to be able to play tennis and so I, I would get credits mm. for playing tennis before school mm. so I would go out there at 6 6 30 and train with my coach until school started mm. and I would see my friends come in they're like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> How, what time did you start? Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like, you're playing tennis super early in the morning. We're going to school and you're playing tennis. Like, yeah, mm. this is my elective, right? So I'm getting that stuff out of the way. And then after lunch, I would go to a regional occupation program. And this is a program that would educate people coming out of prison oh. uh, to, to rehabilitate them, mm. to give them a skill so they can reintegrate. And I wanted to go there because I wanted to learn how to fix a car. Yeah. Right? My car yeah. was in the garage. You, know, <laughs> you, like, got, my, you had this problem in your yeah. garage. <laughs> well, my, my parents didn't know when I got the car that yeah. they were going to lose their garage for the next two years. <laughs> so this car was in the garage. Rusty. Yeah. And, and so I started learning about how to work on the body of the car so I can fix the rust and I can mm. fix all the different mm. things that were wrong with the car or I can actually start to customize the car. Mm. And that to me was fascinating because here I was in this class and I was 15, 16 at the time and my classmates were all these ex-cons and wow. you know the teacher would teach it one way right and it would take four hours or longer and the ex-cons guys that these guys were teaching it another they weren't teaching in fact they were just saying I gotta go to a party in half an hour I gotta get this thing done and so they would fix the you know like there was a little bump in the fender or something mm -hmm. they would fix it in half an hour you would observe them I would observe and I was like wow there's a bunch of ways to do this and it gets to the same end mm -hmm. so along with mm -hmm. being able to formulate my education by taking these classes off-site mm -hmm. and learning things that I was interested in I saw that teaching can be a variety of different ways you mm -hmm. don't have to only do it this way there wasn't this one mm -hmm. path right and maybe the 30-minute path is not a, a great one because you know, you might have to fix it again later, but <laughs> in a short crunch, you need to go to a party, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the instructional-based traditional school that we have today, the kind of formal school that we know, it's based a lot on instruction. You're being told what to think or you're being told what to read. And it's becoming more interactive, of course, in different fields and in different areas, but it's still it's still pretty much the same format. Like, you've been told and you've been asked and you respond. And Very structured. Yes. Very structured. Like, you learn something, you're being tested. You're being asked something, and you're also being tested. But there are other ways to learn. Like you're saying, like observation. In many cultures, children learn through observing the adults mm -hmm. much more. So rather than being told what to do, they're shown what to do. Right. Rather than being taught how to be included in an adult society, they're being included in that society 
to the extent that they can participate <laughs> from an early age on, which yeah. is very different. And the end product is always the same. We need people to do certain tasks in society eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, and on top of that, if you're doing something that you're interested in, you're pouring everything into it. So you're learning way faster because your attention is there. Mm. Whereas in school, I was daydreaming, I was drawing cars, and it, it was wasting time, right? So for me, I was like, oh, wow, the education can be thought about a little bit different, and we can look at this and say, okay, well, based on the interest, what can we do to supplement and support that? Yeah. And my parents were super supportive with that idea. And I told them what I was doing. They're like, well, you, you love this, and you love this, <laughs> and figure it out. Go do it, right? That's great. So, that yeah, they were think, supportive. Mm. Yeah, and that mm. eventually led to mm. how I think about education for my kids. Mm. Do you think that the work on the car was also part of the interest for design, for creating? Oh, yes, of course. Mm. Of course. Because mm. Did you care about aesthetics? Yeah, yeah, of course. And I'll give you an example. With the rusted fenders, as soon as I got rid of the rust, I, I got these bubble flares that were, you know, a part that you can buy, you mm. know, in the store. And But I looked at it and I was like... I don't like how the lines are with that. I don't like how it bubbles out. And so with a little bit of Bondo and fiberglass, mm-hmm. I reshaped it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this was customizing a car. I was 16 by then, and I didn't know anything about customizing anything. And mm-hmm. nowadays, things are, everything is customized, mm-hmm. right? But back then, you know, there was no internet. Finding information mm-hmm. was tough. You, mm-hmm. you were looking at the back of magazines and ordering parts from the little advertisement on the back of a magazine. Oh. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're lucky to find it, right? So, yes, it's interesting you brought that up because I really looked at the car. And the 240Z has really long, fluid lines. Yeah. The front is super long. In the back, it's a really, it's a really beautiful car. I mean, mm-hmm. first Japanese car to be brought here to the U.S. And it had really beautiful lines. And so, how do you, how do you maintain and preserve that? And I was sensitive to that because this is like your beauty. You know, this is like mm-hmm. it, this is my first love. And I was yeah. like, oh wow, look at this! I want this to be like this. I want this shape it like this. <laughs> and, yeah. and I had the tools to do it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I moved to do the interior, and then it's picking color and trim and seeing how you want the overall look to be and. To me, that was, I think, the beginnings of understanding that I can really do this on a larger scale. It was really the first thing that I was making decisions on, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because prior to that, it was just really observing and, and appreciating. But now I had to make a decision. Do yeah. I do this? Do I do this? Do I take these you know, logos off on the side so the side could be cleaner, right? Mm. And I did that. I took that. I was like, let's clean everything up. So huh. it's all about making clean decisions. decisions. Mm. Right? So I was actually forced to make decisions because mm. that was mm. my car. That was my thing. And no one else is going to make it for you. And do I get a custom bumper made? Because mm. the old bumper it doesn't look mm. as good. Or, you mm. know, so you saw, you know, people who made bumpers or, mm. or made bent metal Mm-hmm. you know tubes you mm-hmm. know and then create it and you're like okay i want it like this like this like this and he's like can you do a simple drawing and i had a architectural class in high school and so you know just doing some simple cad drawings and it's like okay here this is the part that i want mm-hmm. you're designing things without even knowing that you're designing things mm-hmm. because you just want it the way that you want it the certain look that you envision yeah and and that was the beginnings of design but i didn't know that at the no, time i no. had no idea I, I had no inclination that there was this thing 
card called color design. I just I just loved drawing. And in high school, the guidance counselors they didn't have any clue that there was a profession called design. Mm. You know, they were just pushing everybody into the same mm. slots, the mm. same silos. And if you came in a little bit like on the creative side, you didn't get much support. <laughs> you know, and my parents didn't know about that kind of stuff. And mm. so when I finished high school. I went into illustration school because it was just drawing. I was like, oh, cool. I love drawing. Let me mm. just continue doing that. Luckily, yes. I had a friend that told me he was going to Pasadena to look at this design school for designing cars. So you actually went to a car designing school? Yeah. Academy of, Art, Academy of Arts in San Francisco for about a year. In When he told me about the design school in L.A., I was floored. And I went there the next weekend and I toured <laughs> the place. And as soon as the semester was done, I transferred down there. Uh, you had to have a portfolio to get in. Mm. So I couldn't get in right away. I had to take some classes. I had to show some ideas. Mm. And after one semester of taking some of the night classes, I, I put a portfolio together and I was in. So I started on the track of industrial design. At the time, I was like leaning more towards car design because I was like, this is this is very cool. Mm. And mm. Yeah. you draw cars. And, you know, so it, it, yeah. was a, it, was a, it was a nice transition into like wow. something that I was already you know having so much fun with yeah yeah i can ask did the car ever like could you drive it oh yeah you could oh yeah so you you didn't just (laughs) fix the exterior we also actually made it work oh yeah i I worked on every aspect Mm -hmm. of the car Mm -hmm. in fact as soon as i got my permit i was able to start driving the car around Mm -hmm. and i was able to take it down to the regional occupation program so i could work it on down there and then drive Mm -hmm. it back and once it got pretty close to being finished I started getting so many speeding tickets that I lost my license before I was no, 18. No. No, I, I, my mom was like, I think you're going to have to sell this car. <laughs> you don't have a license. Like, what are you going to use the car for? Yeah, so you <laughs> sold it? So I sold it. For how much? <laughs> I put a lot of time and effort mm. into it, but my dad's carpenter who helped build the restaurant, he saw the whole process because mm. I was also helping my dad build a restaurant. Mm. I was there after school and on mm. weekends. And so as he was creating his last restaurant, I was... 16, 17, I was helping them, mm. you know, doing some of the construction yeah. work. So Julio, the guy who was the c- construction guy for my dad, he saw me building this car <laughs> all the way up mm. and he knew the situation and <laughs> he eventually bought that from me because he he's like, oh man, the, the amount of work you put into it, and I mean, I appreciate that and let me buy that from you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so I sold it to him for a good deal. Yeah, you know, that's that's great. family. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So you went to art school. Yeah. What happened in art school? How did that change your understanding of things and and maybe your interest in yourself well at the academy of arts i was just learning how to draw it wasn't much in terms of anything different than i was doing but as soon as i got to art center everything changed because at the school there was all types of creative field that were not at the academy of arts so for instance like industrial design product design Mm -hmm. environmental design all these different things that the academy of arts center college of design in pasadena Mm -hmm. was famous for like the car industry pulled the car designers mm. from Art Center. Different product companies pulled from products. Mm. And halfway through, there was entertainment design. So the entertainment industry pulled from the school designers for the movie industry. So for me, just being amongst all these creatives, I, I went from just drawing to now creating things. Yeah. And that to me was a was like, eye-opener. It was mind-blowing. Yeah, right? like from because, scratch. Yes, yes. Right. And, and it completed the circle of like when I was like appreciating things Mm. to then be able to put my touches on my car to now creating things that 
you're solving problems、mm. you know it's like、mm. we have this project and this is what we're trying to solve and so come up with creative solutions for that so that was for me was like perfect place like i couldn't have been happier、oh. and my parents supported it and you're amongst peers that、yeah. feel the same way right、yeah. so you know we go back to like learning、mm. and having fun when you're learning、mm. oh i was in my zone that was、wow. my place wow、yeah. now At Art Center,、mm. I also took a hold of my education because I enjoyed the drawing part. And so I, I had a lot of electives in drawing,、mm. and I had amazing instructors.、Mm. One, Bern Hogarth, who has all these dynamic drawings, he was by far one of my best instructors at Art Center. So、mm. outside of my typical design classes,、mm. I had that. But there was a, another class that I took that was, it was called meditation. And that class. Shifted my understanding of myself for、mm. one, right?、Mm. And, and also of tapping into maybe the subconscious.、Mm. I mean, I look back at it now, <laughs> yes, it's tapping into it. And, and no one else in my department or in industrial design at all, anybody in design, there was nobody that went to that class. I was going there with fine art students, photographers, and、oh. everybody else besides design students. and What was interesting about this class, it happened at four o'clock. So, when you're done with your studio class,、mm. you went there. And it, the funniest thing <laughs> is that a lot of people fell asleep in the、it、class because they were so tired from their studio <laughs> class. And the instructor, Dr. Vic, was this very Yoda like character. He was a bit smaller stature. And when you see him walking around school, he was always walking super slow. He was meditating, walking, right? Like he, he goes, was flying? Yeah, like, gliding, just, gliding, just moving about, you know,、yeah. and being in his own. And, you know, they say meditation, sitting down is the easiest, right? So if, if you can meditate while you're walking,、mm. that's a bit of a challenge. And he was doing that. Wow. Right? And so every week we had the class, he would introduce a different type of meditation. And so we would try it and see what resonated. What did that make you feel? So he introduced different methods of meditation. Yes, from different cultures.、Oh. Right? Different positioning, some sitting, some laying down, and even to the Native American sweat lodge. Like、mm. we had a trip to a sweat lodge, and everybody got in there, and、mm. that was their space for、mm. this type of activity. And this was、mm. 1992. If you think about it, you know, 1992 is it's pretty early on in terms of people going to yoga classes. There was no yoga studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, I guess meditation wasn't that normal in the US. No. Like it wasn't that typical.、No. People wouldn't go to meditation classes, right? No, but you know, I think what interests me was because, you know, my parents are from Taiwan.、Mm. And so a lot of my principles and,、mm. and beliefs still strongly rooted in Asian culture. My mom、mm. was into the Japanese Buddhism, and,、mm. you know, when she was growing up.、Mm. And So, they would sit there and they would meditate and pray、mm. with the beads and different、mm. things like that.、Mm. And so, that wasn't weird to me. That、mm. wasn't uncommon.、Mm. You know,、yeah. it was like I saw that in my grandparents as well. They did that. Every time、yeah. I went to Taiwan, I saw that. I've been around this type of activity. So, to me, it was like, oh, let's discover that. Let's, mm. let's mm. figure out what、mm. else is there about that. Now, there was one or a bunch of sessions, and when I started meditating,、mm. where I started having out of body experiences. In what way? <laughs> so, there's one where you're, you're laying down, your legs are up a little bit, and you put your hands across your heart, and you start to count, right? And you start to breathe into、mm. the count. And all of a sudden, you would feel like you're disconnecting from your body and you're seeing yourself. Wow. Right? And so. Like you're in a dream? 
Yeah, because you're basically, I mean, when you start meditating or if you're doing yoga and you're in sabasana, you have this like very light feeling, like everything is very clear and the whole purpose of yoga is to get tired and so your body and mind can connect and when you do savasana you know i joke about that people ask me mm -hmm. or i ask people what's your favorite position and they tell me this and that and i was like my favorite position is savasana because i want to get there so i can have this you know in between state of mm -hmm. being here and being somewhere else and mm -hmm. and sometimes you get insights in those states mm -hmm. right and so mm -hmm. for me that particular med meditation method allow me to do that mm. so even when mm. i didn't have the class i would go home and i would just mm. meditate for however long it took and sometimes you would fall asleep and sometimes you would have these experiences mm. and it was different all the time because you're in a different state all the time but just the being able to start to tap into that was exciting to me i was like oh wow what's that i want to do more of that that felt really good you know that felt and i can't i can't quantify i, I don't know you know how to describe it i mean i can say oh it's kind of like this and dr vic from the meditation class mm. would start to tell us about these mm. kind of things and at the time you you, you wouldn't understand well i didn't understand mm. because i was too young to understand mm. maybe this kind of stuff and my parents never talked about that kind of stuff they just did it and they didn't verbalize it so for me it was a bit of exploratory and i enjoyed it you know mm. even the sweat lodge you're like what's going on am i you know i didn't take mm. any drugs i mm. wasn't high i wasn't smoking marijuana so so you were having these things naturally and yeah. so that really interested me yeah you, know? you can do that just with your mind and by resting or right. breathing or yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of that happens because you've quiet the mind when you can quiet your mind then other things can happen if you're thinking too much you're hearing sounds mm. and you're hearing like oh somebody just slammed their door mm -hmm. or you're counting or you're thinking about a project <laughs> like you're not you can't is that's not quiet in your mind and you can't get to that space mm. but this particular pose allowed me to either rest or get to that space and that was the beginnings of tapping into knowing yourself a little bit better or tapping into potentially something else yeah right? do you remember anything that you realized when doing this so when you had this experience of getting an outside perspective on yourself or a deeper understanding do you remember it as anything specific or was it more a general realization that you could use the mind for purposes that you didn't know already like for more yes. overall holistic kind of integrated purposes of understanding you know after you come out of that meditative state everything is more calm and less stressful mm. right and as we're going through school and as it's getting towards finals and you have to rush and do things that mm. was actually a very good spot to be because then you weren't stressing yourself out in the head you know and as i'm going through art center i, I looked at how people dealt with stress. And I saw a lot of people pull all-nighters to finish mm. projects. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't like the feeling of, you know, the next couple of days. Mm. And your body's trying, it's deprivated, mm. it's sleep deprivation. In some ways, it, it's kind of like, you know, you can get to a different state too. The state of exhaustion. <laughs> I probably went to those all-nighters instead. I didn't meditate, so <laughs> completely opposite. <laughs> it's not the best thinking, the best insights that are coming you might get some connections connecting the dots being able to complete work by putting in hours but the genuine deep understanding it doesn't happen like that yeah 
And you're getting that feedback, right? So you mm. can actually feel like, oh, do I like this? And I didn't like it. In the beginning, I, I you know, pulled mm. some all-nighters. Like, I got to change my schedule and I got to make sure that I got to get myself in position so I don't, you know, yeah. do that. And these meditation sessions help me. Because once you're out of that session, you're super clear. And when you're super clear, you're in a zone, right? <laughs> and you can make way better decisions. And so I think that allowed me to be able to go through Art Center without as much stress as mm. maybe some of my colleagues. So it was trial and error. At mm. that age, you're exploring mm. and you're mm. figuring out things. Mm. And I was really fortunate because that was a big moment for me because it's like tapping into, I mean, they say our brains are not fully utilized or it's only mm. utilized a certain percentage, but mm. that for me felt like I was tapping into just a little bit more. And I appreciated that, you know, and I was like, okay, I, how do I continue that? moving forward so you still meditate oh yes yes yes, yes. You, so you've been meditating since that age different forms yeah right i've mm. done yoga and you know mm. gone through the teacher training and mm. then but that particular one is for me the best and then with renzo especially before he goes to sleep if he seems kind of jumpy and now just like okay count your breaths mm. breathe in breathe longer breaths and it helps him mm. as well right mm -hmm. so he's at a very young age mm. learning how to be able to calm himself down and it's pretty much carried through my life you know and mm. sometimes I forget when you're in a stressful situation mm. and when I was in school the stress is a little bit different than mm. you know now mm. you know because mm. you then you don't mm. have to worry about anything else besides the schoolwork and so so it's nice to be able to be reminded mm. to be able to do it again and it's free it's always there it's always there you can yeah. bring it out anytime you and, need it and you can actually try to go to the next level and try to meditate while you're conscious and walking about and mm. doing things mm. right how, mm. how do you do that <laughs> like how do you stay connected with the outside world that's yeah. active and going on while also having an internal like being free from the chaos yeah like double chaos freedom <laughs> <laughs> one thing i thought about when you mentioned dr wick vick dr. Was it? Vic, yeah. dr wick yeah. he introduced you guys to different methods mm -hmm. and not only showing that there are different ways of doing similar things, some uh, methods might work better for you. It's interesting how you either have been attracted to or have created opportunities to learn from methods that are very open, that are not closed. Mm -hmm. The entrance point for learning is very free. Mm -hmm. Very that exploratory. Is, yeah. Right? I don't know if that's something that you create or that you're or attracted to, maybe both. Well, you can start to see from the early age aha moments to now I'm in, mm. in college. There's some similarities mm. in terms mm. of following your intuition and saying, okay, that, this feels good. Mm. I, I like this. I'm going to do more of this. This doesn't feel good. Let's cut that out. Right. So you can start to see some of these things really build on top of each other. Right. And now this meditation is building on top of interest and also mm. tapping into different level of consciousness, mm. which wasn't happening before. But the interest part starts to you know, open doors to things that you may not have known about. I didn't know anything about this stuff. No. But there's other aha moments later that you're going to see that then starts to go deeper into this mm. kind of stuff because of that particular moment, mm. that meditation class inspired some other ways to tap into the consciousness. Bringing mm. mm. the mind again. <laughs> yes. So this was college. And then after that, what happened after that? I know that you were on the West Coast, San Francisco right. and L.A. Right. 
And uh, there wasn't a technological explosion over there. There was a lot of things happening yes. at that time. Yes. And uh, I'm wondering where you were in all of this. What happened then? So the next, the next moment is right around 97. Mm -hmm. Now a bunch of friends and our backyard was all this tech stuff. Everything is it was happening. And this is prior to the dot-com boom bust mm -hmm. period. But there was a lot of emerging tech that was happening and we were at the age where we were trying to figure out next steps in terms of our career mm. and we finished with school and we worked a little bit elsewhere and mm. then this was time to do something. You know, coming out of school, I went to Nike and I enjoyed the time there, but mm. I, I didn't really like the structure, the corporate structure. And mm. I think having entrepreneur parents, that actually set a lot of things in my mind of wanting to have your own business you know because when i worked for them it was fun because, mm. and i saw them run it mm. and it was the time when J the japanese economy boomed so mm. it did extremely well and i saw the potential mm. of having your own business you know and mm. my dad's always it, i mean we came to the u.s they mm. didn't even speak english i mean mm. that's pretty risk-taking <laughs> that's a big risk yeah. you know they're taking yeah. and starting your own business right mm. so i mean it's very typical like american dream mm. he built that and my mom supported it, and it's amazing yes what, and you, you know, saw that in, yeah in and I, as a son you always you're like oh can i do at least what my dad did or can i do better <laughs> and I'm like, oh man i would have to move to another country and not know that language put myself in that same situation and see if i can succeed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then i could be better yeah. right but it was always like mm. oh he did it it's possible i didn't see my parents working for anybody so it, mm. it was never a route it was never an option but i went to nike because of the sports i loved you know sports <laughs> yeah. and that yeah. was the mecca so it was enjoyable to be there and be inspired and mm. to inspire others by telling the Nike stories of all the athletes, that yeah. was amazing. Yeah. This was the Jordan era, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the, yeah. Well, it, it was an interesting time because I was in the image group and we dealt with everything besides the products. Oh. So we did Nike Towns, we did all the events. We also did the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. Wow. Took a garage, outfitted and created an experience out of that wow. for all the people who came in. And also, that was a time when Nike was acquiring a lot of different brands. So Nike itself was going through a brand evolution, a mm. big one, mm. right? Where people now knew about Nike, the swoosh was separated. So it was a fun time to mm. be there because you really got to learn about how a big company manages brands and how they are strategic and how they do that mm. so that the consumer doesn't lose the story. They're not missing a beat. Everything is consistent as you're evolving the brand through. Wow. I, I didn't learn that in school. The Nike Towns was all about experience. They sold products, but it wasn't a big money maker. But it was a, such a great place to tell stories. And we heard it all the time. Kids come in and they read this story about so-and-so. Like one of the funniest stories, like Mia Hamm. Her mom would give her a can of Coca-Cola after every practice, and that was her motivation, right? So kids saw that, and they're like, wow, mom, I, you know, like, I want a can of Coke every time I, I finish my practice. But, you know, just inside stories like that we were telling that mm. give you insight into all these amazing athletes. Mm. Like she was like, one of the top soccer players. And so I learned a lot from mm. that. When you can tell a story, the experience becomes that much more powerful. When you tell a story, everything else actually doesn't even matter because you get drawn into that story, mm. right? We're so obsessed about, about what's true or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. But a story involves choices that are, you know, a perspective. Mm -hmm. Perspective on reality. And you can use different strategies to tell a story that might not 
be completely what others would have seen, but it's what you saw and it's still valid yeah. as a narrative, as a story. That's right. Well, and, and the best thing about these stories mm. is that they get told again. Like, yeah. now you know the story, you'll go on and tell the story, right? So it's, it's passed yeah. forward. Yeah. That's the beauty about these stories, right? It's the oral and, tradition of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's knowledge being passed right through stories. Now, inspiration mm. as well, right? Because all these athletes are at the top of their game. Mm -hmm. And if you have an inside story, you're able to share that. And people mm. are like, oh, wow, that's a cool story, right? And yeah, they're able yeah. to share it and share it and share it. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, eventually it's just a, it was a fun place to be for a little bit. And, and so moving back to the Bay Area, we're seeing all this tech stuff going on. And, you know, I was fortunate actually at Nike. I was playing tennis with a guy, Ed, and he was the head of the materials lab. Materials lab? What was that? So this material lab had all the advanced materials that supported products, apparel, like shoes and apparel and mm -hmm. anything else, right? And so they would research all the advanced materials out there or develop materials, and they had a full library of like things moving and you had all these it's almost like a moving library you're like what? You're with, punch uh, with in. materials yeah it, just racks of material rolls of material wow. and you would punch in like what do you want to look for mm -hmm. like a special type of mesh or characteristics and it just comes in it and you can pull it wow. and then you can go and test it and do different things with it and so so not like a factory, but actually more like for the production team, for the designers to really see how it would look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And, and at that time, there was a material explosion mm. in just about every industry. So you saw all kinds of different types of materials that started to pop up. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate to play tennis with him because he then introduced me to these materials. And I've always been fascinated with materials. And seeing that, it got me even more excited about materials, which... You know, when we started in case it was 97, we were like, how, how do we create products, you know, that we, don't, we didn't have any money. So we were figuring out how to create products and how to sample and do the different things. And, mm -hmm. and that became a really amazing inspiration because I was now seeing materials that were years ahead. And for me, it wasn't hard to say, okay, let me go buy a sewing machine and let's just start making things. And so at the beginning stage of Incase, we were just making soft goods. I learned how to make the, you know, make the prototypes and just start sewing things up. And wow. So that was the beginnings of saying, okay, well, if you have this tech, like, are you going to hold it in your hand or are you going to wear it or, you know, where are you going to mm. put it? Because you couldn't possibly put everything in your pocket. <laughs> it was kind of like this evolution of being at Nike where... It was all about soft goods and all wearables and mm. all that kind of stuff. And now looking at tech and how we can actually pair up with that mm. and make that so it's more wearable, a bit more fashionable than the hardware. Because mm. at that time, the hardware was Didn't look not so good. very good at mm. all. Mm. <laughs> Apple was <laughs> they weren't there yet. <laughs> it was just the beginnings of all this, right? Mm. Yeah. So for yeah. example, like PDAs. Yeah. Like, yeah people don't know what it is. It's because... It's all part of the features of the iPhone. You know, you don't even need that. It's an organizational tool, right? But it, amongst other things, and the cell phone was becoming a thing, mm -hmm. and going mm -hmm. online was becoming a thing, mm -hmm. right? You now can have massive amounts of information that mm -hmm. you can have access to. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting on top of all this, mm -hmm. and you're looking at all the stuff that's going on, and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what do we do? What's our play into this? How do we maneuver in this? And wow. a lot of our classmates were designing the hardware stuff. And so we found ourselves in an interesting spot because we were doing a lot of the softens. And in a very short time, we had a lot of friends calling us and 
asking us to, to do things for them. You know? Like you b- like, make one? Yeah, we have this product. Can you, can you make a wearable for this? Can you, you know, so we were on the fringe of technology in a way because we were doing the soft goods and they were mm. doing the hard goods, mm, right? Yeah. But we were seeing everything that was coming through mm. and we were getting involved with that mm. stuff because we were now creating the soft goods for that. Wow. So in the beginning, did you have fabrics only? And then after a while, you start to get more like cases and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, all, that, all that started to evolve. But in and the beginning, it was fabric. It's oh. all, it was all fabric. The very start of us working with Apple was a friend of mine from high school. Uh, he was there inside sales, and he's like, hey, we have an employee store. At the time, there was nothing else. I think that the time, Jobs was just coming back. It was 97, so mm-hmm. he was you know, still out. He was like getting ready to come back a couple of years later. <laughs> so we got products into the employee store, and it was a laptop bag for one of their laptops and we were fortunate to be already in the presence of apple and yeah you know and it's the funniest thing is we asked them if we can put our logo on the bag somewhere along with the apple logo mm. so it was a co-branded laptop oh, bag yeah. right and uh, that's unheard of they, they wouldn't even let you come close to doing no. that nowadays right no. but that was the early days of apple everything was kind of a bit free form and you know there was no hard set rules so we had this product in there and i think that being in there people started to have a trust they saw the association yeah, yeah. right and we had a lot of friends that were apple designers so our yeah, classmates yeah. You know, they were working with the hardware or yeah. designing the actual products and you guys were working on uh, on yeah, the, to, uh, yeah. the mobility part of it yes yeah. why do you think they said yes to the collaboration because it really was collaboration it absolutely was yes. yeah it was co-branded yes. and they approved the product you know and i, I think it was because it's early and you know it, apple didn't have any brand guideline books no. dictating <laughs> that that couldn't be <laughs> they, they hadn't even thought about it no, you it were was, too early and they haven't even thought about making the wearables yeah they weren't doing that that no. wasn't even part of no. their design thinking yet they were like okay that's cool that they they're making that bag yeah. great that would know? be better for us as well yeah I, I they guess were focused the, on yeah. their own things mm. right and mm. the design department was much smaller then mm. of course you know, mm. everything was very different so my name is imac but it's written imac <laughs> and I, so i remember back then some people were saying that i should brand my name somehow <laughs> Right, when the, when the iMac came out. In the 90s. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> and then some people after that said, you should sue them. For, like Because you can never use your name to register anywhere. Every time I want to create an email account or whatever, I couldn't because there was someone working at Apple with the same last name as me. And that used iMac. Oh, wow. So I could never, so it was, someone oh, said, wow. yeah, you should sue them because you, you can't even be you. Yeah, they change your identity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always thought, like, no, let's all be friends. But it's still, it's kind of funny. And the first laptop bag that I bought or get from someone was an in-case. We always had in-case products. Wow. Nice. Like very early, like as soon as they came out. Yeah, nice. Uh, so always had in-case. So when Nicole introduced me to you and she said you might be able to sit down and I was like oh my god in case <laughs> in case founder like that's so amazing yes I love the products they're beautiful yeah they have this uh, simple design mm-hmm. and I catch something you said when you were designing the car or like trying to uh, redo the car and and when you were 16 and mm-hmm. you try to make it smoother you took away the logo so it looked cleaner mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And the ink case design is also very clean. Yeah. From the beginning, yeah. even back then, it was almost a bit futuristic. Mm-hmm. It's not simple design, it's, but it's clean design. Mm-hmm. It's like an open canvas. Because when you have a clean design, you can add so many other things to your life, to your dressing, to whatever you have around you, because that creates kind of a foundation. Right. It also reminds me of what you were talking about when you're talking about how you learn and how you've been interested in different entrances to learning having an open canvas, you know, yeah. a platform that's not closed. It's still open, an open landscape. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I, I'm just thinking it's so interesting to think yeah. about these threads and, and think about how the design came to be that yeah. clean. Well, I, I attribute a lot of that to the education at Art Center mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there you're really taught about form follows function. So... First, you figure out what it needs to do, and then the form accommodates for that, mm. right? So there's not embellishments. Like in fashion, mm. there's more embellishments, mm. and you make it so it's more fashionable, mm. more aesthetically. Like I mean, clothing is functional too, mm. right? It's, it's, mm. it's got to fit your body. But it, when we're going through the design program, that was one of the key things that mm. uh, Art Center taught. It was like form follows function. So make sure... That you're not just drawing something beautiful and it doesn't actually work. <laughs> it doesn't function. <laughs> it's just function does not follow form. <laughs> <laughs> Although now it can because yeah. technology allows it. So you can actually create something and then put the functions into it, right? And it's really coming from the Bauhaus movement. Mm. They thought about this stuff and mm. that was ultra clean design, yeah. right? Everything about that is like... Yeah. That's really from the education. Yeah, you know, yeah. and my partner we were colleagues as yeah. well. So we come from the school. That's how we formulated. I, I would think that was kind of a general mm. design philosophy for most people because uh, how strong the Bauhaus movement was mm. and how that really inspired uh, mm. designers or or instructors or people in the design field to say, "Okay, yeah, let's Let's mm. move in this way. Right, right. Um, I think technology has materials that has evolved quite a bit where there's a little bit more flexibility. You look at architecture. There are some architectures that is just gorgeous. I mean, the forms are just amazing. Well, the materials allow it to do that. Before, bricks and steel <laughs> don't give you quite the movement. You know? mm. like, I mean, you look at the Apple campus, the mm. glass mm. is bending. Right. I mean, they, they own the manufacturer for that. You know, when you own the manufacturer of glass yourself to do your building. Yeah. Then it's easy. You can do whatever you want. You can really push things. right? Yeah. I mean, the Apple stores in the beginning, if you look at the staircases mm. and the, the bent glass mm. and how they pushed everything. Mm. Right. So materials have really gotten to the point of being able to give designers more freedom. A lot of things in the past is structural. If you look at the New York landscape, you can really tell which era each building's from by the materials mm. being used. Mm. So you can tell like, yeah, mm. this is from the 1900s because mm. the steel and mm. you know mm. the different stones. And, and mm. nowadays you don't need that. There's other ways to do it. So now it's more glass involved. You know, it's mm. a different design vernacular language that you can speak. It's more evolved and a bit more refined. And we're not limited by a lot of things that were limited by before. So the idea of form follows function gets really pushed because now you can say, okay, well, the function can exist in all kinds of different forms. So 
Now what is it? What you know, is, is it? it? Yeah. Is it form follows function, follow form? <laughs> yeah. Or is it a dialogue between the two over time? It's, Ooh, it's raining. <laughs> that was that was really wow. wow. Yeah, that was that's, that's Miami for you. Is it? Yeah, where well, you get you get the sirens in New York, you get yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> you get the <laughs> storms down here. That's amazing. <laughs> well, you you know, I was listening to the first your first podcast yes. with the quantum yes. uh, with Mark. Yes. And you know the qubits thing, the qubit and how mm. the one and zero coexist mm. at the same time. That is interesting because if we're talking about mm. form and function, now you're talking about qubits and and those two exist. Mm. I saw some sculptures where it just starts to look like the environment. Ah. Mm. I mean, stunning. That was mm. by an ex-physicist that is mm. doing sculptures. When you start looking at that, you're like, wow, we're, everything is being questioned, you know? And yes, everything is yes. being turned upside down. And yeah. like both one and zero exist. At the same time. At the same time, right? So that's kind of like form and function can exist at the same time. Mm. Right? Like just, just pulling out an analogy of yeah. some sort. And it's like, wow, that can exist at the same time. Right. So what is that then? Yes, what is it? And one doesn't have to follow the other, no. right? So it's breaking down the whole idea of form follow function. Yes. I, I would like to see some design that you make where you maybe explore those principles. They're talking a lot about representation of things. A lot of time, we're making it too complicated. So maybe a lot of things can be presented even more simple, like Mark said, in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. So if it's possible to represent and simplify the whole model of something, we don't need to clutter it so much we can make it so much easier for us to create things to understand things and to run things through a computer mm-hmm. uh, and it would be interesting to see the collaborations that would come from the fields now being very open for interdisciplinary mm-hmm. collaborations and yeah. f- for exploration and using and applying principles from one field in another would be fascinating like if physicists working with a designer thinking about working with a person who is an expert on perception Mm -hmm. Um, so just those kind of collaborations that would be fascinating yes absolutely yes that's that's very exciting because we we don't know how this is going to shape out because Mm. we're at the beginnings of it right Mm. so just even understanding the idea that those things can exist at the same time you have to let that sink in a little bit and think about like what does that actually mean yes yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah what does that mean (laughs) so it's still early on for me i'm just like learning about it so we'll you will see how that formulates now what's interesting around this time Mm. when we started I saw this article and it talked about the perfect waffle recipe, right? And <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, wow, I, I love waffles. And yes, I want to make the perfect waffle recipe. And so I, I started reading the article and it started describing a, a concept called robust engineering. Now, when we start talking about quantum physics mm, and mm. robust engineering, they're, mm. they're, you know, it's a world <laughs> apart. But at the time in, in 97 and, you know, 2000s and you know, that time we were starting to manufacture, you mm. know, so robust engineering was this concept or let's back up and use the waffle as an example. Mm. It's like in order to make a good waffle recipe, right, you can either make a waffle every week and mm. test it and mm. see if was that the best waffle recipe. And then the next week, test another one. And then the week after, test another one. And eventually you'll get there. It may take, maybe if you're lucky, it takes a month. Maybe if you're not lucky, it takes, you know, a couple of years, right? Because you're, you're, you're basically... You're really perfecting it. Yeah, and you're doing it linearly <laughs> mm-hmm. through time. And 
the way this guy was talking about developing the waffle recipe was super interesting because it was saying, why don't you take all the variables, right? So that's water, flour, sugar, heat, all these different variables that goes into creating the waffle. And we're going to make a bunch of different tests mm -hmm. all at once, changing those variables. Okay. So the same variables are changed? Yes. Or you add new variables? No, you, you keep the same you, variables. You, yes, you keep all the same mm. variables, but mm. we're, we're going to take mm. one weekend and do, say, for instance, like 12 different waffle recipes, mm. tweaking, 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 tweaking all the variables. So, mm. so now you have 12 different recipes and you're mm. testing that. Yeah? At the same time. At the same time. I was like, wow, I, that's kind of, that sounds interesting. Mm. I, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost more, but you're going to save time because mm. from this test, you're going to be able to understand what each variable does and how it affects the recipe. So you might not get the perfect recipe in this try, but you've learned what causes reactions mm -hmm. and what is the factor that's going to get you to the recipe that you want. So maybe you test like eight recipes at the same time and all eight doesn't work, then you know that. You don't have to spend eight weeks on it. Exactly. Yes. Right? But then you and then you'll have another collection of recipes you test. And then eight again and two of them works. So you're accelerating your acquisition of knowledge. Right? Really fast. Yeah. So this was another mm. uh, moment for me because if you think about in the past, you know, there was like how do you learn faster, right? Feedback is mm. one of the things that allows you to learn faster. Mm. Here, you're getting feedback way quicker than if you test one recipe a week. Because you're going to probably have waffles on the weekend. Yeah. So you're <laughs> going to have it every day. No, so you you're going to have once a week, right? Yeah, yeah. So now you in one weekend, you're testing out all these different recipes. And you're saying, okay, cool. I learned this. The water affects it like this. This type of flour affects it like this. The sugar, the balance. Of, and maybe like you have mm. certain flavors. And after the first week... The knowledge gained is immense. So the second yeah. time you do that, you take that knowledge and you're able to do another batch of testing mm. and be able to hone in even mm. more on the, the perfect recipe, mm. right? Your perfect wow. recipe. So how did you bring those principles into your work? So the waffle recipe concept was really an example of how the oh. car manufacturers, especially in Japan, the yeah. car manufacturers in Japan were using this recipe. They were using this robust engineering mm. technique in order to understand, I'll give you an example. Mm. They've used it across every s segment or every part of the car. So for instance, let's take the engine. If they're testing out how to supercharge this engine, there's a lot of variables that can go into the design of that engine from like noise, the output of noise mm. is like one big factor. It's like, if you do this, does it create more noise? If you do this, does it create more noise? So they do a lot of testing <gasps> and they did all that stuff up front and they do it with all the different parts of the car. The byproduct of that was that they were able to develop a new model every four years where the American car companies, it took them six years. Remember the waffle that we mm. did every weekend? Yeah. Well, it was two more years before the American car companies can bring out a new model. Right. Where the Japanese were, because they were testing it a bunch every week, they were able to gain the knowledge and insight to then further, so every week that they test this, they were that much more ahead because their acquisition of knowledge became immense. So it's a very complex testing where you basically get an overview much faster. It's yes. more complex. It takes time to analyze it. It takes time to really understand how everything's connected. But you get answers 
quicker anyways. Yeah, and then you build your knowledge base mm. to the point where you know when you're testing certain things that mm. that is affecting that. So if you're able to, to beat your competition by two years, you basically killed your competition. So that's what happened in mm. the 80s and 90s when the Japanese car manufacturers started bringing cars out quicker and all the parts in the car were way more refined. And I totally remember that time. It's like, mm. wow, if you look at an American car company, the parts were clunky. They didn't match. Heavy. They, everything about it wasn't refined. But the Japanese cars were because they were using this robust engineering technique mm. to be able to do that. Fast. Four years compared to six, like, okay, now the second time around, eight mm. instead of 12. Like the advantage that you just gained it just starts to multiply. It's right? kind of exponential yeah, over time. Like, yeah. And, you know, since then, I think things have maybe evened out a little bit more mm. because, mm. you know, you hire the Japanese engineers mm. to <laughs> adopt these techniques. <laughs> but at the time when this was happening, for me, the waffle concept was mind-blowing to me because we were in manufacturing and we were trying to figure out you know, working with Apple it was, was a totally different business model because typical business model, it's a yearly seasonal mm. cycle. So you knew kind of going into it and whether whichever industry you're in, it's either a year cycle, a year and a half cycle at Nike, you know, it was like a year and a half before a new shoe came out, mm. right? So they're on this year and a half cycle. And mm. so, so when you start to look at Apple's business model, they were releasing the new devices whenever Steve Jobs wanted to. <laughs> when he said this yeah. was ready to launch, right? Mm. There was no seasonal cycle, right? It could come in February, it could come in July. In the very beginning stage, yeah. it was very random. In the summer vacation, people would stand in line in a foreign country. So as a, as a yeah. business trying to, to mm. support that and accommodate for that, it was tough. It was even tougher because in the beginning, they didn't give you the device ahead of time. Everybody who was making hardware, software, or apps, or anything, you had to wait till the device came out. And at launch, you bought like the retail people bought. Then you can go make products for it. So it's mm. a device-driven business. And early on, when we were starting to work with Apple, and luckily enough, we did the first iPod and you know, and different products like mm. that. We were, you know, we were lucky to do some of those things. What did you make on the iPod? The iPod? Yeah. It, it was actually like a leather case. It was like a leather case that, you know, had a cut and for the wheel and yeah. for the screen. And my other two partners, they were doing a lot of phone cases at the time. They were doing Nokia's business. And then we came together and we started to do projects together. And mm. we got along and we formed the company and mm. we moved forward with that. And so they had a lot of experience with mm. that. I hadn't worked with leather before. So, mm. you know, it was a bit of a learning process. That was the first iPod case. It was a leather case that you can clip onto your belt like it was a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Everyone we're walking around with. Yeah. And then we like, okay, well, let's do some color yeah. color leather, yeah. right? So yeah. it looks yeah. a little bit more fashionable. So but yeah, that was beginnings, right? And you know, when we started realizing that this is a device driven business, we had to start to evolve our processes mm. so that we can accommodate for that. And one example this this example I think is in my mind really like what shifted things for us it was the the nano 2 launch and everybody had to wait till the product came out until they got the samples but prior to that i was like let's implement robust engineering and we just took the general concept because the product wasn't out yet and so we prepared a bunch of different product lines in anticipation for what that could be 
Mm. Right. So we didn't know. Nobody knew what the form factor for the Nano 2 was going to be. Right. So we just took a guess. We're like, okay, if it comes out a little bit more elongated or if it's a little bit more boxy, let's just guess at a, a bunch of different things and make <laughs> samples. So yeah. we're close. Right. We had a product line for each shape uh, and function. Probably about six to seven different lines of products yeah. so that when that product came out, it was almost there. You just right? need to tweak it a bit and then... Yeah. So that, <laughs> that was how we applied robust engineering. It wasn't the linear fashion where you're just going to take time, right? Mm. We were prepared for the launch. Mm. And when that device came out, we're like, oh, wow, it's very close to this one. We made a couple of tweaks, right? Within a week, we had it approved <laughs> and we had prepared materials that was ready uh, ahead of time mm. so production line was prepared we like okay we're going to production in a week like prepare mm. like get ready mm. materials are all done so as soon as we got the device in a week we got it approved and we were manufacturing in a week and then one week to ship so we were on the shelves in three weeks wow and everybody was shocked like shock 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 because the nearest competition didn't even get their till at least a month later so we were on the shelf selling a month before everybody everyone else, else. the right? only case talk about I, killing your competition yes <laughs> like yes. the japanese car makers did right so it's a very similar story right wow. that was and the waffle recipe all the like, waffle recipe yeah. this is the perfect case yeah. for that right yeah. and that really got the attention uh, of everybody at apple because mm. they're like how did you do that right from retail up to jobs mm. everybody was like, mm. what happened here? Who leaked out the information to them? Yeah. That, that was always the <laughs> rumor. Yeah. Everybody was like, you guys got the thing ahead of time? I'm like, no, we bought it. Like, here's the receipt. We bought it. You know, there was no information for the launch, mm. right? There was nothing. Everybody mm. had, it was fair game. <laughs> we were just playing, mm. but we were prepared. And with that preparation, they asked us to launch with the iPhone 1, the wow. first iPhone. Right? Wow. So, because they knew that you could deliver really fast. And then you were delivering with the launch, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is this is the first time where they gave us a spec for the iPhone. And, and I was so nervous because, you know, like the, I had the iPhone specs, mm. you know, uh, six months ahead of time. We were running around China getting preparing oh. for the launch of the iPhone. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we had to do it like they did it where we just distributed parts and we brought it together to assemble in a different factory. So nobody knew what they were making. Ah, oh. right. You couldn't. You couldn't because otherwise show, they would copy it. Ah, yeah. You would leak the iPhone yeah. <laughs> spec to, to, to your vendors, and yeah. being, you know you're under contract. You know yeah. you can't you can't expose any of that stuff. So you know I was running around with my my laptop with the iPhone spec. You know just being okay. Here you make this part, make this part, make this part. Wow. And so we were so fortunate, right, that we did that exercise, and that allowed us to gain the trust of you know from top to bottom based on you know robust engineering it was like this thing mm. that just was like oh wow that's a waffle recipe you got to collaborate with apple pretty early you were just there you just delivered this product and they saw the potential there was only three companies that launched at the time it was us we're a soft good manufacturer we're mm. you know case company and then there was two other hard good like making components that were hardware so we saw that as such a blessing. With the iPhone launch, we did hard cases. That's why they gave us time and mm. gave us specs. And so we could actually launch not just soft goods, but mm. also molded product. Did you understand then what you were part of? That Apple would end up being the company it is today and that iPhones would be everywhere. You, you know, with the iPod uh, being such a mobile device, right? you start to get the inclination that 
there's a trend moving this way.、Mm. You know, when you can carry, I mean, the Walkman. Was clearly one of the、mm. early ones、mm. of mobility, right?、Mm. Like, <laughs> like, you have a Walkman, you're the you're the coolest dude. Like you're just walking around in your、mm. headphones. But、uh. the iPod was was the、mm. next level,、mm. and then the iPhone. I mean, in the beginning, the features were there was not that much.、Mm. But if you start to like project it out, you're like, oh wow, there's you know there's something here. But、mm. I, I don't think we were thinking that way in terms of, like, oh, this is the mobile economy. It, you know, as we see it now, maybe you're just like, "Oh wow, this is great!" Now you have all these features on one device,、mm, and it looks really, yeah, and, intuitive. Yeah, you know, Nokia at the time had their device. It was a foldable device.、Mm. I think it was a nine thousand or nine hundred or something. It was foldable,、mm. but you didn't see people carrying that stuff around. But it had all the features, right? But now you had one device that looked amazing and had all、mm. the features. So you start to see, and at the time, you know, there was no app store. I think that、mm. was all starting、mm. to come into play. But I don't think we guessed that that would turn into this mobile economy that we see now. We just thought that, oh yeah, this is great. It's、mm. a cool device that housed all those things that came before. Yeah, you know,、yeah. you had the organization, you had the phone, you had the music and camera. <laughs> now it all held in one. So.、Yeah. Yeah. For us, it was an opportunity to create something that can house that and be able to wear it, and it's a bit of a wearable it, challenge, it, it, right? It's such a perfect collaboration. The iPhone has become, I would say, one of the most significant design achievements in tech.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's beautifully made. Functionality and design goes hand in hand,、right. and then you have Incase that created products for us to carry these Apple products in. Right. It's like perfect match, like a hand in a glove, which also has the same kind of clean design, very easy to incorporate in your daily life for many people.、Mm-hmm. A perfect collaboration. You started something that's not technology.、Mm-hmm. You created a business that's very connected to technology and essential for the business. Right. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah, we were fortunate that that was happening in our backyard. It wasn't so much an aha moment, but it's just more of an observation. You know, during the dot com boom and bust, we were creating a brick and mortar company. We were creating actual physical products, and all our、uh, friends were raising money. This is the first wave of、uh, web. Yeah. You know, so <laughs>、yeah. like Webvan. Yeah. You know, all these、yeah. different companies. Like, if you had a Uh, online in your pitch deck, you got twenty five million dollars. Yeah,、right? yes, yes. So we had friends that were spending money like it wasn't theirs, because、yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, and they enjoyed spending it, right? Yes. But when、yeah. that boomed, we were still around because we were making products and we were just taking our time, and we felt like the slow turtle, just、mm. like one step at a time, and you know all the rabbits were like falling off the cliff、mm. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> everywhere around the bay area. I mean, it was like a ghost town in the bay area. Was it right? Oh yeah, that was that was. So everyone moved out. Well, you know, like their valuation, like they, they didn't have revenue, right? So their valuation was all inflated, and they raised money, and so you saw this boom, right?、Wow. And then the bust. Right, and then you saw all the nice cars back in the the parking lots of all the car dealers because、mm. everybody lost their jobs and everything crashed and yeah, the freeways were empty. It was like eye opener, saying, "Um,、oh, you know, I- I'm glad we weren't part of that. We were kind of on the peripheral and providing something that complemented it." Eventually, that all passed, and we moved forward. Yes.、Right? Are you still involved with In Case?、Oil? No, no,、mm. not anymore.、Mm. You know, we were working so hard for so long,、mm. 
And my partners and I, we were all pretty burnt out mm, because yeah. of the speed that we had to perform at. Mm. You know, the device-driven mm. business, there's wow. no stopping, right? Because it was one thing after another, mm. <laughs> after another, after another. And Always so a I, new launch. I was the first mm. to be burnt out because I mm. spent most of my time in China handling the things going on over there. Wow. So development, design, and manufacturing, like quality control mm. and figuring out that whole bit because... You know, we had to educate our manufacturing partners to make mm. sure the quality levels are to the level that we want. And it took a lot of effort to be there all the time. Mm. But when you're there developing mm. and designing, and so we put offices over there and mm. we had designers come over. And when you're there doing that, things move way quicker. When you're here, the communication gap is very difficult. Even mm. though I speak Mandarin, it's still difficult. Because the way you think about things is different, mm. right? They mm. think about things a certain way, but... You know, if I'm telling about robust engineering, they're like, mm, what are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> Until, <laughs> yeah. So I was there, like, guiding this whole process. So we were lucky. We had amazing manufacturing partners. Mm. In fact, one of the most fortunate things that we, we had early on was we had a manufacturing partner that was in uh, sporting goods. And we were coming from tech, saying that this is our market. We're going after tech. And it's not something that they had. Mm. But since they were a big conglomerate uh, manufacturing mm. group and they saw an opportunity, they saw a bunch of young kids, like mm. I was, you know, 27, 28, and mm. they saw a bunch of young guns and they're like, let's take a gamble on them, let's fully support them. And we were really fortunate. Like now that I look back and the more I've talked to people, I realized that, you know, they supported mm. us in a way mm. that if we had raised money mm. or if we had a bank that supported us. Basically mm. what it was is we had 90-day terms. So... What that meant was that we can manufacture, sell to Apple, collect the money, and then pay them. Oh, wow. So financially... They we, gave you a loan, basically. We can almost. grow at any speed that we wanted. That's a great business plan. Why it, don't it more people an, do that? Well, it's, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a big financial yeah. risk, mm -hmm. right? They saw an opportunity, mm -hmm. and they saw how hard we worked. Like I was busting them. I was mm -hmm. busting them up. My, mm -hmm. my dad told me, you stay longer... You get there earlier. Bust them up. Like, mm. bust their balls. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, show them that you're there, you know, yeah. to get it done. Like, yeah. you're not messing around. And that's what I did. Wow. They, they sent a car for me, and I'm already in a taxi on the way to the factory. Like, yeah. don't, don't. Don't, worry, don't worry. I'm already there. <laughs> so, they not only did that, they also held inventory from mm. materials. So, we had over a million dollars worth of materials on hand to make in, you know, if we were going after mass merchants like Target and all these different, mm -hmm. like, we had materials lined up. So it's already because materials is as long as lead time. If you have an order and you have to go make the material, mm -hmm. the material manufacturer has to make materials, send it to the manufacturer to make it. It takes a while. So mm -hmm. all the common stuff, I had them stock and then we had finished product. So not only did they support us from, from the financial, but we also had stock of wow. materials and finished products. And it's a big gamble for them, mm. but they're a big conglomerate that, you know, like we were their little brother and they, they supported us and, and that allowed us to grow at any speed that wow. we want and they would adjust. I've never heard of any, any situation that's no, like that. That's really community based and old school. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of trust there. There was a, a lot, lot of trust. trust. 
And you know,、mm. we were fortunate because I'm、mm. from Taiwan, and they、mm. were Taiwan manufacturers, mm. and mm. so I, I think that bond also helped, helped because I would not work with a local manufacturer、mm. because they're controlled by the government. They have different motives. It was just a perfect situation for us, and、mm. I think us putting in the time there to work with them、mm. and to show that we're serious,、mm. and mm. also to show. With the market that we're going into,、yeah. and and then the numbers start showing up because Apple was doing well.、Yeah. Apple started opening stores everywhere, so it was the right timing,、yeah. and we put in the right effort. So everything yeah, worked that, out. But after ten years, I, I was pretty burnt out, and、yeah. so I stepped away. And my partners continued, and they eventually stepped away. And there's always people that want to come in and, and you know make an investment、mm. and buy it out or、mm. different things like that,、mm. but. In hindsight, we should have just took a little bit of time off、mm. and then be refreshed and and go at it again.、Mm. You know, I think when you're tired and you're burnt out, you you, you don't make as good decisions that、no. you might have otherwise. It's hard to see all the alternatives when there's actually in the short term only one alternative. Yeah, some time off, <laughs> like a serious time off. The, I heard this amazing thing the other day. It's like, you know, when your kid is like playing a sport or doing something,、mm. and he comes to you and he wants to quit. You tell him, hey, you can't quit on a bad day. If you want to quit on a good day, that's when we can talk about yeah, it. But yeah, but you can't quit on a bad day.、Yeah. So, that's really what、yeah. happened to us. It's like it was tough, and we were burnt out, and yeah, you know yeah. we should have been quitting on a good day. Yeah, we probably would have made a better decision. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it, life evolves,、mm. and、mm. part of my decision was because my dad passed away like a few、mm. years before, and I was in search of something different, maybe something a little bit more impactful. With a different purpose. Yeah, something that maybe directed my energy towards different parts of communities. Maybe something in well,、uh, I was searching for something that was more meaningful,、mm. right? So that、mm. was fun because、mm. I was doing it with my boys, and that was amazing. But then I started searching because you know you lose a dad, it's very meaningful,、mm. yeah. So I think that led me to have another aha moment. In the next and second part of this episode, you will hear more about Bobby's journey after he left Incase to pursue more opportunities to grow and learn as an entrepreneur and as a human being. Thank you for listening to the first part of this summer special episode. I'm your host Imak Samrana, and this is the Chameleons Podcast. 